Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. You can view the live stream on Facebook at Mother Miriam Live. Now, here's Mother Miriam. Good morning, beloved. Hello, dear family. How are you? I do pray that you're well, always, 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 always. And um, I'm thrilled to be with you. Every time a new week starts and I can be with you, I'm more thrilled than ever. I know I sound a little hoarse. I'm not sick. What can I tell you? My voice says its own thing. But I'm fine. So what I thought we would do today, there's so much going on in the world, and I know that you're somewhat keeping up on it. Um... The devil would have you focused on it. He would have you depressed. He'd have you concerned. He'd have you troubled about the times. Do not be curl up in Jesus, deep into his heart, deep into, under our mother's mantle, and just thank God for your faith. Be grateful for the faith we have in the Catholic Church that Christ established that will never be defeated against which the gates of hell will not Uh, come. So they will come, but they won't destroy it. And so we've been reading for Lent, victory over vice, because that's what we all need. We're trying to stay with our commitment to fasting and doing without things during Lent. More importantly than that, we can give up coffee, we can give up chocolate, we can give up a lot of things, um, but what we need to give up are our vices. And Take one at a time, if you wish. And the best uh, book so far that I've come across is Archbishop Fulton Sheen, Victory Over Vice, published by Sophia Press, Sophia Institute Press. And since Bishop Sheen writes that it is the seven deadly sins that put our Lord Jesus on the cross, Bishop Sheen has attached one deadly sin to each of our Lord's seven last words on the cross, seven deadly sins. And the first one we read was the first word from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, to which Archbishop Sheen has attached the sin of anger. The second word from the cross, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise, to which Father Archbishop, rather, Fulton Sheen has attached the vice of envy. It's deadly. It's deadly. Um... And that's, it just, it was a very powerful chapter, and we read through it. The third word, um, woman, behold thy son, and then son, behold thy mother. Bishop Sheen has attached lust to that, and I'm guessing on the part of those who would have heard our Lord. We started it last week, but so much time has passed. I'll read from the beginning of the chapter again on the vice of lust and the virtue that should be nurtured. Bishop Sheen writes, Lust is an an inordinate love of the pleasures of the flesh. The important word here is inordinate, for it was Almighty God himself who associated pleasure with the flesh. 
he attached pleasure to eating in order that we might not be remiss in nourishing and preserving our individual lives. He associated pleasure with the marital act in order that husband and wife might not be remiss in their social obligations to propagate mankind and raise children for the kingdom of God. The pleasure becomes sinful at that point where instead of using it as a means, we begin to use it as an end. To eat for the sake of eating is a sin because eating is a means to an end, which is health. Lust, in like manner, is selfishness or perverted love. It looks not so much to the good of the other as to the pleasure of self. It breaks the glass that holds the wine. It breaks the lute to snare the music. It subordinates the other to self for the sake of pleasure. Denying the quality of otherness, it seeks to make the other person care for us, but not to make us care for the other person. Do you hear that? Young women, if a man says, and you're not married to him, if you loved me, you would do this. You would be intimate. You would let me love you in an intimate way. He's completely selfish. He seeks to make you care for him, but not to make, but he doesn't care for you because someone who loves you wants God's best for you. And someone who wants God's best for you would never lure you in to an intimate relationship outside of marriage. Never, 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 never. That's not love. That is selfish uh, desire from a man or a woman who cannot control himself or herself. Pure selfishness. It's not a means to give yourself totally the other one and propagate. It is... Um, a means to satisfy your own fleshly desire and what you think is love, but it is not love. Love doesn't want to satisfy its flesh. Love wants to lay down its life for the others, for the other. I'll continue with Bishop Sheen. <clears throat> Archbishop Sheen, we are living today in what what might properly be called an era of carnality. As the appeal to the spiritual relaxes, the demands of the flesh increase. Living less for God, human nature begins to live only for self. For no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will sustain the one and despise the other. Peculiar to this error of carnality is the tendency to equate the perpetuity of marriage with the fleshly pleasure, so that when the pleasure ends, the bond is presumed to be automatically dissolved. That's why marriages break up. They don't understand love. They don't understand commitment. As soon as the pleasure is gone, as soon as we need to live for the other, it breaks up because we don't know how to live for the other. We don't know how to lay down our lives. We don't know what commitment means. In America, for example, I'm sorry, that was my comment. In America, for example, Archbishop continues, there is more than one divorce for every two marriages. An indication of how much we have ceased to be a Christian nation and how much we have forgotten the words of our Lord. Quote, what therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder, end quote. 
The regrettable aspect of it all is that with this increased sin, there is a decreased sense of sin. As our sin increases, we grow numb to it. Souls sin more, but think less about it. Like the sick who are so moribund that they have no desire to be better. Sinners become so calloused that they have no yearning for redemption. Having lost their eyes, they no longer want to see. The only pleasure left to them is the end. The only pleasure left to them in the end is to mock and sneer at those who do. It is never the pure who say that chastity is impossible, but only the impure. We judge others by ourselves and attribute to others the vices from which we ourselves refuse to abstain. Some reparation had to be made for the sin of lust that in the Old Testament times became so hideous to God that he would have withheld the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah could but ten just men have been found within their gates. Our Lord began making reparation for it at the first moment of the incarnation, for he chose to be born of a virgin. Why did he choose to transcend the laws of nature? The answer is very simple. Original sin has been propagated to every human being from Adam to this very hour, with the exception of Our Lady. The prolongation of this taint in human nature takes place through the carnal act of which man is the active principle, for man was the head of the human race. Every time there is generation of one human being by another through the union of man and woman, there is the propagation of original sin. The problem confronting the second person of the Blessed Trinity is becoming man. I'm sorry, the the problem of confront... I'll start that again. The problem confronting the second person of the Blessed Trinity in becoming man was how to become man without at the same time becoming sinful man. That is, man infected by the sin to which all flesh is heir. How to become man without inheriting original sin? He had to be a true man in order to suffer for man, but he could not be a sinful man if he were to redeem man from sin. How could he be both man and yet sinless? He could be man by being born of a woman. He could be sinless man without original sin by dispensing with man as the active principle of generation. In other words, by being born of a virgin. Thus it was that when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her that she was to conceive the Messiah, whose name would be called Jesus, she answered, How can this be done? Because I know not man. She had made the vow of virginity, and she intended to keep it. And she did keep it, beloved. And we'll continue with this right after the break. You are welcome, dear ones, to call in with anything on your heart at any time, toll free, 1-877-511-5211. 
5483 We'll be right back. LifeSite News is an international news agency devoted to defending life and family and restoring Christian culture. We aim to educate and activate our readers with the information they need to fight the most crucial battles of our day in their churches, workplaces, and families. Our motto is Caritas in Veritate, Love in Truth. We firmly believe that promoting the truth is an act of love, however hard it is to hear. Over the last 20 years, we have built a reputation for uncompromising reporting, no matter the cost. LifeSite News is by far the most popular pro-life website on the internet, with over 40 million unique users every year and growing. Check us out at LifeSiteNews.com. This is Mother Miriam. How would you like to wake up each morning to inspiring sermons from knowledgeable and faith-filled priests? You can tune in to Sermons for Everyday Living every day at 6 a.m. Eastern on the Station of the Cross. You can listen on thestationofthecross.com or anytime on the free iCatholic Radio mobile app. God bless you. We offer several ways to view our programming grid, including at our website, thestationofthecross.com, and on our iCatholic Radio app. Just click the menu icon in the top left portion of our app and select the link to our programming grid. That's at thestationofthecross.com and on our free iCatholic Radio app for Android and Apple mobile devices. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved family, to Mother Miriam Live. Uh, we are reading through Archbishop Fulton Sheen's Victory Over Vice um, by uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen and uh, published by Sophia Institute Press. And we are on the third word from the cross, um, which is Woman, Behold Thy Son, and Son, Behold Thy Mother, John chapter 19, to which Archbishop Sheen has attached one of the seven deadly sins of lust, and that might have been from the hearts of those who heard our Lord. Um, and just backing up on this last, last paragraph, how could Christ become fully man without, be, without transmitting or having original sin transmitted to him? And Archbishop Sheen says he could be man by being born of a woman. He could be sinless man without original sin by dispensing with man as the active principle of generation. In other words, 
by being born of a virgin. Thus it was that when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her that she was to conceive the Messiah, whose name would be called Jesus, she answered, How can this be done? Because I know not man. She had made the vow of virginity, and she intended to keep it. The angel answered, that the conception of the Son of Man would take place without man through the power of the Holy Spirit, who would overshadow her. Being assured of her continued virginity, she accepted the motherhood of God incarnate. Be it done unto me according to thy word. So it was that reparation for sins of the flesh began the first moment of the incarnation through the virgin birth. That same love he manifested for virginity in the beginning, he re-echoed at the first sermon of his public life, quote, Best blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God, end quote. Later on, when some scribes and Pharisees sought to malign his good name, he challenged them to find anything impure in his life. Which of you shall convince me of sin? The final atonement and reparation is made on Calvary, where in reparation for all the impure desires and thoughts of men, our Lord is crowned with thorns, where in reparation for all the sins of shame, he is stripped of his garments, where in reparation for all the lusts of the flesh, he is almost disposed of his flesh. For according to sacred scripture, the very bones of his body could be numbered. We are so used to looking upon artistic crucifixes of ivory and the beautiful images in our prayer books that we think of our blessed Lord as being whole on the cross. The fact is that he made such reparation for sins of the flesh that his body was torn, his blood poured forth, and scripture refers to him on the cross as a leper, as one struck by God and afflicted, so that there is no beauty in him, nor comeliness, that we should be desirous of him. Our Lord chose to go even further in reparation for the sins of lust by dispossessing himself of the two most legitimate claims of the flesh. If there was ever a pure and legitimate claim in the realm of the flesh, it is the claim to love of one's own mother. If there is any honest title to affection in the universe of the flesh, it is the bonds of love that attach one to a fellow man. But the flesh was so misused by man and so perverted that our divine Savior renounced even these legitimate bonds of the flesh in order to atone for the illegitimate. He became totally unfleshed in order to atone for the abuse of the flesh by giving away his mother and his best friend. So too, his own mother, so to his own mother he looks and bids farewell. Woman, behold thy son. And to his best friend he looks and bids farewell again. Behold thy mother. How different from the world. A mother will deprive her son of an advanced education in a foreign land, saying, I cannot give up my son. Or a wife will deprive her husband of of good material advancement through a short absence, saying, I cannot give up my husband. 
These are not the cries of noble love, but are of attachment. Our Lord did not say, I cannot give up my mother. He gave her up. He loved her enough to give her away for her life's plan and destiny, namely to be our mother. Here was a love that was strong enough to forget itself in order that others might never want for love. He made the sacrifice of his mother so that we might have her. He wounded himself like the pelican so that we might be nourished by her motherhood. Mary accepted the poor exchange to carry out her son's redemptive work. And at that moment, when Jesus surrendered even the legitimate claims of his flesh and gave us his mother, Mary, and his best friend, John, selfishness died its death. Two lessons are to be learned from this third word from the cross that the only real escape from the demands of the flesh is to find something more than the flesh to love. And that, Mary, is the refuge of sinners. If we could ever find anything we loved more than the flesh, the demands of the flesh would be less imperative. This is the escape a mother offers her boy when she says, Don't do anything of which your mother would ever be ashamed. If there is that higher love of his mother, the boy will always have a consecrated sense of affection, something for which he will be willing to make sacrifices. When a mother makes such an appeal to her son, she is merely echoing the lesson of the Savior, who in giving his mother to us as our mother, equivalently said, my children, never do anything of which your mother would be ashamed. Let a soul but love that mother, and he will love her divine son, Jesus, who in order to make satisfaction for the unlawful pleasure of the flesh, surrendered to his last and lawful attachment, his mother. The psychology of this enthusiasm for a higher love of Jesus and Mary is an escape from the unlawful attachments of the flesh is this. Let me read that again. The psychology of this enthusiasm for a higher love of Jesus and Mary as an escape from the unlawful attachments of the flesh, pardon me, is this. By it, we avoid undue consecration, concentration on lower loves and their explosions. Think about your mouth for five minutes and you will have an undue concentration of saliva. Think about your heart for five minutes and you will believe you have heart trouble. Although the chances are nine out of ten that you have not. Stand on a stage and think about your hands and they will begin to feel as big as hams. The balance and equilibrium of the whole system is disturbed when an organ is isolated from the function in the whole organism or divorced from its higher purpose. People who are always talking, reading, and thinking about sex are like singers who think more about their larynx 
than about singing. They make that which is subordinate to a higher purpose to all important, so all important that the harmony of life is upset. But suppose that instead of concentrating on an organ, one fitted that organ into a pattern of living, then all the uneasiness would end. The skilled orator never finds his hands are awkward because being enthroned, pardon me, being enthused about his speech, he makes his hands subordinate to their higher purpose. Our Lord practically said the same thing. Be not solicitous what you shall eat. So it is with the flesh. Cultivate a higher love, a purpose of living, a goal of existence, a desire to correspond to all that God wants us to be, and the lower passion will be absorbed by it. The church applies this psychology to the vow of chastity. The church asks her priests and nuns to surrender even to the law, even to lawful pleasures of the flesh, not because she does not want them to love, but because she wants them to love better. She knows that their love for souls will be greater as their love for the flesh is less. Just as our Lord died on the cross for men because he loved his own life less. Nor must it be thought that the vow of chastity is a burden. Thompson has called it a passionless passion, a wild tranquility, and so it is. A new passion is born with the vow of chastity, the passion for the love of God. It is the consolation of that higher love which makes the surrender of the lower love so easy. And only when that higher love is lost does the vow begin to be a burden, just as honesty becomes a burden only to those who have lost the sense of others' rights. You see, beloved, if in marriage... um, The higher love of God is lost. The vow to chastity becomes a burden. We are all bound to chastity our entire lives. We're not bound to celibacy, to abstinence. Religious are, but married couples are not. But they have the same chastity as religious do. That is, to be faithful to their profession. So to a married couple, you must be chaste the wife of one woman. Wives, the wife, I mean the husband of one woman, excuse me, the husband of one woman, wives, the wife of one man. Chaste, not to have eyes for any other. If you look on a woman to lust for her men and you're married, you've committed adultery in your heart. Same thing, women. If you look on a man to lust for him, you have committed adultery in your heart. If you're already married, and if you're not, then you've committed fornication in your heart. In either case, you have not been chaste. If you are chaste, and you are chaste for heaven's sake, you will find it easy um, 
to never break that chastity, to keep true to your wedding vows, to keep true to the one man, to the one woman that you are vowed to. It will not be a, a problem for you at all. So there's the music for our second break, dear ones. We'll come back right after this break, and you're welcome to call in with anything on your heart. Um, toll free one eight seven seven five one one five four eight three or uh, email mother at the station of the cross dot com. Prayer in time of affliction. Blessed, O Lord, be thy name forever. Who has permitted this affliction to come upon us? We cannot escape it, but must of necessity fly to thee to help us and turn it to our good. Lord, we are now in affliction. Our souls are ill at ease, for we are much troubled with this present suffering. Let it please thee, O Lord, to deliver us, for poor wretches that we are. What can we do without thee? Thy mighty hand can do all things. Give us patience, O Lord, and strength and peace. Help us, O God, and we will not fear, no matter how grievously we may be afflicted. O Lord, thy will be done. Welcome be the will of God. Sacred Heart of Jesus, we place our trust in thee. Amen. We stand at a crossroads in history. We can stand up for life, family, and a Christian culture. Or we can stand idly by while the fabric of society becomes fundamentally anti-life, anti-family, and anti-Christian, slowly leading to its own demise. LifeSite News is the leading defender of life, family, and Christian culture. Through our news reporting, we seek to educate readers with information and zeal. They need to fight the most crucial battles of our day. And we need your help to continue that mission. You can support LifeSite News by following our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Another way to support LifeSite is to prayerfully consider becoming a Sustain Life monthly donor to help us continue to save lives in the culture. To donate, visit give.lifesitenews.com forward slash sustain life. Our staff of over 40 and millions of future generations thank you for helping to save the culture. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. I'm so thrilled to be with you. This is our half hour together. So feel free to call in, uh, toll free with anything on your heart. Uh, it's one 511 5483 or email at mother at you of the life funder that LifeSite News has so graciously set up for us. Um, we're at 32% of the need. And I think 20-something days to go, I don't have it up, I don't know how much, but um, uh, the email address is 
um, lifefunder.com, L-I-F-E-F-U-N-D-E-R, all small letters, lifefunder.com, forward slash, and then all caps, the name of our community, uh, D for David, D-O-M-M-O-I-H, Daughters of Mary, Mother of Israel's Hope. And um, you can contribute to that if you wish. I think it's 27 days le- left. I've, I've, I'm not counting or I lost count. So um, God bless all of you. I give you a big hug uh, who are contributed to that. I think there's over 500 donors already. And again, we're um, over 30% there. We've got a ways to go. Um, and I just love you all who are contributing to that for our new home. Again, we did close on a house but we're already out of the walls. So it's going to become our guest house. And we're looking for a much bigger house that we could take in more women while we are making plans to build a little monastery here in Beloit. So you got the whole story now. So um, uh, I just bless all of you and thank you uh, for partnering with us, for being a part of this um enormous venture to help restore God's design for the family and um, reach out for the salvation of every single soul. So let's see now. We have a text from Tony who wrote in and said, in 1986, 1993, and 2002, Pope John Paul II organized the World Days of Prayer for Peace in Assisi, Italy. It is my understanding that Catholics are not supposed to participate in prayer events with other religions. I've heard a lot of criticism of the Pope for doing that. Can you please explain the church teachings about these and communal prayer events? I will do that, um, dear Tony. I, I won't comment on what Pope John Paul II did because... Um, he, he's not alive to speak for himself, and I don't know if he has um, written about that uh, uh, event or, or defended why it was done that way. But I'm reading an article now um, uh, by a, a Dominican father, Thomas Creed, Christendom Awake, who says, and I agree, um, Uh, This article seeks to offer a theological reflection on a not unknown feature of the contemporary Christian world, namely public divine worship performed jointly by Catholics and non-Catholics. And he says, I shall consider first, by way of a historical background, the traditional teaching of theologians um, on uh, communicatio in sacris, secondly, the references to communicatio in sacris and to common prayer, that's sacred communica- communion, and common prayer in Vatican II's decree, decree on ecumenism, and in some subsequent documents, finally, whether certain current practices of common prayer are theologically defensible. I shall not consider the reception by Catholics of sacraments and so forth. We're talking just prayer here. Um, And he goes on to say, the traditional teaching of Catholic theology on whether Catholics may participate in non-Catholic religious services is summed up by St. Alphonsus Liguori in his Theologia, uh, Theologia Moralis. This doctor of the church writes, quote, it is not permitted to be present at the sacred rites of infidels and heretics in such a way that you would be judged to be in communion with them, 
end quote. And he goes on to say, the reason for this teaching is clear. Religious commitments are naturally manifested by outward acts, and to perform an outward act expressive of a false religious commitment is a sin against the true faith. This is true even if the man in question retains the true faith in his heart. So to take the classic example, Christians in the Roman Empire realized that they must not throw incense before a statue of the emperor, even if they had no belief at all in his divinity. For the act was of itself, in their context, expressive of such a belief, and hence sinful. Um, I'll go on one more paragraph. He writes, this teaching, so that would say clearly, that would speak clearly against what um, Pope Emeritus Saint John Paul II had done. He goes on to say, this teaching does not imply that the simple presence of a Catholic at a non-Catholic religious service is a sin, not the presence. Thus, moral theologians prior to Vatican II followed the lead of Saint Alphonse, acknowledged that there may be a good reason for a Catholic to attend such a service as when friendship leads one to attend a non-Catholic wedding. This is called by some theologians passive communicatio in sacris, passive. It is an active participation in a non-Catholic religious service which is forbidden by the traditional teaching on communicatio in sacris. For example, joining in with psalms and hymns in the course of a Lutheran so-called Eucharist. The following examples they give. Um, I won't go on with the examples. So can one be present at a non-Catholic event? Uh, Yes, but to join in with them in their prayers and in other uh, activities is to support their belief, which which a Catholic cannot. So, Tony, um, that's my answer to your question. If you ask me why St. Um, John Paul II did what he did, I cannot answer you. Um, I believe he was a very great man, but um, I cannot give you the reasons why he thought it best to do that. We have an email from Janet who writes, is there a single experience or, or revelation that you had in real, that really solidified your belief in God? For example, have you ever seen any apparitions or had any once-in-a-lifetime experiences like that? Thank you, Mother. I pray for you daily and love your show. Thank you, dear Janet. I've never had an apparition in my life. No, I have not had anybody come to me, angels, the Blessed Mother, Jesus, saints. No, 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 no. Um, I've had, um, I could say, three moments in my life that are once-in-a-lifetime experience. There are three of them. Um, they're not um, extraordinary uh, appari- they're not apparitions or anything like that I'll tell you what the three are once when I was Jewish many of you have heard this when I've shared my testimony um, in my Jewish background I was 19 and I knew there were two people in the world Jews and non-Jews never knew a thing about those who weren't Jewish 
um, never had a bad word, nothing. But the news came out when I was 19 in the middle of the miniskirt era in New York that nuns had permission to shorten their habits to knee length. I didn't even know the word habit, but the news ripped through me. An electric bolt went through me, and it was my personal deep and immediate loss. Personal, it paralyzed me for a second and a half. It was my loss. It had nothing to do with me. I lost what wasn't mine. It was an electric experience. That's the end of that story, but I never forgot it. 26 years later, listening to who I call a troublemaker called Scott Hahn, who said that the one who will, who, um, will look into the claims of, and I had been at that point an evangelical Protestant for 18 years trying to save Catholics, He said, for the one who will look into the claims of the Catholic Church, 26 years of, um, uh, rather, 2,000 years of church teaching, the church fathers and such, Scott said, to that one will come, his words, a holy shock and a glorious amazement to find out that what he had been fighting and trying to save people from was, in fact, the very church Christ established 2,000 years ago. And that holy shock, Scott Hahn's words, physically ripped through me. It was like an electric bolt. Again, it paralyzed me for a second and a half. And I knew on the spot, though I still couldn't fathom being Catholic or believing it, that holy shock was so strong that I knew if I did not look into the claims of the Catholic Church, I'd be turning from God. Those two times, 19, that... The shortening of the habits, that was my deep and immediate loss, and it had nothing to do with me, I thought, 26 years later, when I knew, uh, not only I'll tell you now, in hindsight, that holy shock 26 years later, which is the same thing that happened when I was 19, only those two times in my life, was so powerful that when I look back, I know something else that happened. I knew on the spot that it was true, that the Catholic Church was true. And the whole of my four-and-a-half-year agonizing search to the Church was to find out how on earth it could be. I knew at any point during that search, if I turned from it, I'd be turning from God, and I entered the Church in 1995. Um, There's something in between those two holy shocks, but those were kind of supernatural, significant moments that... I can't account for, um, unless God did it. There was one other, um, and that was uh, in my Jewish background when a group of very faithful, beautiful Jews for Jesus, evangelical Protestants, were trying to lead me to Christ. Blessed God bless them forever, but I thought they were insane. And the night that I said to them, look, I have no idea what you're talking about, Christ died for your sins, my sins, the sins of the world, whatever that language means. I have no clue what you're talking about. Let's say this happened. Let's just say Christ died for your sins, my sins, the sins of the world. My question is what for? What was in his mind? What would a man do going to the cross and doing that? What was he thinking? And when I went through asking that question, they took me through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which I never knew through all my years in Judaism. They explained to me how we come into the world separated from God for original sin, and if we leave the world that way, 
will be separated from him for all eternity. I won't go through everything that said they said that night. We don't have time on this program for me to do that. But basically they told me that the Old Testament sacrificial system told the Hebrew people that without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sin. They went through the Passover where the blood of the lamb was put on the doorposts that when the angel of death flew over Egypt that night, all the firstborn in Egypt of man and beast, that would be the oldest son of of man and of beast would be killed. But the houses that had the blood of a lamb, a one-year-old male perfect lamb, on the doorpost would be saved because the angel of death would see the blood and pass over that house. And so the firstborn would be saved. And they took me through the sacrificial system for 1,500 years that God gave the Jewish people through Moses on Mount Sinai and how a lamb or bulls and goats and lambs had to be sacrificed, bloodshed for the forgiveness of sin. And finally, how the individual every Passover would come with a lamb. A lamb had to be perfect, without blemish, without spot, to represent a holy offering for a holy God. It had to be one year old and perfect. And the individual would take that little four-legged creature before the priest and put their hand on the head of that little lamb. It would symbolize the sin passing from this individual onto that little lamb and that little lamb who was innocent but who symbolically had taken upon itself the sin of this person was that slain and the blood of that lamb shed on the altar as an offering to God for this person's sin. I would say the holy shock that came from that story and the end of it I'll tell you when we come back. The future of the family is grim. As Our Lady of Fatima said, the final battle will be for the family. It truly seems as though we're in the heat of this final battle and we need your help. Our mission at LifeSite News is to educate and activate readers with the information they need to defend life and the family and restore Christian culture. We are currently the most popular pro-life website on the internet with over 40 million unique users every year. And we've been experiencing an even bigger reach than ever this year. But we need your help to reach more of the 7.7 billion people on earth if we are to truly succeed in changing the culture. Please consider donating to help our mission of promoting the culture of life and fearless defenders of the faith like Mother Miriam. Visit give.lifesite.news.com to give today. Thank you for your support. Be to Jesus. Hi, this is Joe McLean, host of the Catholic Drive Time Morning Show, joining you on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network each weekday morning at 7 a.m. We'll keep you informed and inspired with insightful guests and breaking news stories of the day. That's the Catholic Drive Time, weekday morning, 7 a.m. on the Station of the Cross and the iCatholic Radio app. We'll see you then. May God love you. Podcasts of our network-produced shows are free for your listening pleasure at thestationofthecross.com and on our free iCatholic Radio app for Android and Apple mobile devices. Be uplifted in your faith and inspired to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen today at thestationofthecross.com or on our iCatholic Radio mobile app. 
Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to uh, Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross and LifeSite News. Um, I um, just have been answering Janet's email, taking a little lengthy time. Janet said, is there a single experience or revelation that you had that really solidified your belief in God? For example, have you ever seen any apparition or had any once-in-a-lifetime experiences like that? Um, Well, there wasn't a revelation that solidified my belief in God, but there were that solidified my belief in the fact that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is one God in three persons, and that he sent the second person, the Blessed Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah and God himself to earth, to die for the sin that separated us from God. And the, the, the three events in my life, one when I was 19, the holy shock that nuns habits would be shortened, 26 years later, um, I think I was 46, I don't recall, I think so, when uh, I was listening to Scott Hahn, and I knew that if I did not look into the claims of the Catholic Church, I'd be turning from God. That began my journey. And then finally, uh, well, actually, in between those two, what actually led me to Christ were magnificent Jews for Jesus, Mitchin Zahava Glazer above all, um, that um, explained to me how... Uh, not any of the Old Testament sacrificial system, not a million lambs together could take away the sin, but every lamb, that every lamb was sacrificed and in a symbolic act that was transferring the sin from the individual onto the animal, the animal who was innocent, but who symbolically had taken upon the sin of the individual, was slain to meet the requirements of the law for blood to be shed, and shed on the split, a shed on the altar as an offering to God for my sin, and I thought, why would God do that? Why would God put an innocent animal to death for my sin? Put me to death? It made no sense, but it began to get through to me that sin was no light issue to God. That God would do that, and these beautiful Jews for Jesus. Um, said to me that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs for 2,000 years, 1,500 years of the Mosaic sacrificial system couldn't take away sin. They were dead sacrifices. They had no power to change the worshiper, to change the heart. They were ineffectual. They were temporary. But every one of them and all together were a sign, they said, to point to the one who would one day come and take upon himself not the sin of a single individual for a time, but the sin of the entire world for all time. You know, I'm looking for a crucifix that we're still in temporary quarters. Um, let me just see this. This is... Can you see my crucifix here for my Benedictine um, rosary? It's blessed. So the sins of the entire world, past, present, and future, put our sins, put on him, the lamb, the final lamb, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world 
And when they showed me that illustration and quoted John 129, when Jesus walked into the Jordan and John the Baptist looked at him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Janet, that was the second time. The third time was the holy shock with um, Scott Hahn. But when they quoted that verse after they had taken me through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament for two and a half hours, they pointed to the one verse, lamb that takes away the sin of the world, the sign to which every Old Testament sacrifice pointed. Uh, for me, a curtain opened up, and I knew it was true. I knew it. I, I, it's almost that I saw the stage. I didn't physically, but I saw it in my mind's eye. I said, a man can't be God. How could this be true? A man can't be God. And I realized that night I was right. A man cannot be God. But God, if he exists, can become a man. And I believed it by the grace of God. And it was a couple of months after that that I gave my life to him. I had to shed pride and baggage and whatever I feared. Gave my life to that incomparable man. The man, the man Christ Jesus, the God man, God come to earth. I've never been the same. And it was 18 years later that I realized that that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who I was raised to know that no man could look at and live, um, not only did he condescend to become one of us, but he condescended further to become our food. There's no words to ever describe it. There's no length to eternity to give him enough thanks. Faith is a gift. We have an email from Priscilla that I think we may have uh, entered into on Friday, but I don't know that. And Priscilla, I want to read it again. If I've already done this, I want you to get a book. Um, Priscilla writes, Dear Mother, how can I overcome my fear of confession and trust in God's mercy? I've been struggling with going to confession recently. If I fall into mortal sin, I ask God to forgive me and sometimes sob out of sorrow that I have messed up again and offended God. But I'm often embarrassed to confess to a priest I put it off and put it off and put it off because of the shame I feel of telling the priest that I've fallen into the same sins again. Priscilla, dearest one, that's why Christ died, because we all do that. We fall into the same sins over and over and over again. Priscilla says, I know I should not feel this way, and the worst sin here is probably the pride of continuing to delay this, but I am an overthinker, and when I'm in the confessional line, I feel choked up and anxious. I understand that this can be normal, but the frequency that I have experienced this avoidance from confession makes me believe these feelings are from the devil. Well, I'll tell you, they're not from God, sweetheart. They're not from God. I've been withholding myself from communion for about four months, and it saddens me. It saddens God, too, dear Priscilla. Before this time, I tried going to confession once a week. However, I noticed I was becoming scrupulous and my confessions were a bit lengthy because I include venial sins that I think are mortal. Don't worry about that. Let God judge that. But you should include venial sins. After confession, I often fear that maybe I was not specific enough in the type of sin so it might not be forgiven. Um, There's two books I want to... um, 
uh, urge you to get, uh, just in case the program ends, I'm going to stop to give you those two sins. One is called Scrupulosity and the Saints. Scrupulosity and the Saints. The second one is called, um, oh, let me get the title, uh, Seven Secrets of Confession. So, number one, Scrupulosity and the Saints. The second one is Seven Secrets of Confession by Vinnie Flynn. I think I reviewed that. I might even have a review in the book. Seven Secrets of Confession. If you ever want a book that understands what you're going through, read that book. Um, uh, it will it will convince you that you not only are you are not alone, not only are your thoughts normal, but it'll help you to go to confession. Um, uh, Priscilla writes. Um, oh, you see, I knew I wouldn't get it, um, get through it. But this is the third try I've had. So, dear one. Uh, understand that there's no such thing as a priest who hasn't heard every sin in the world. And the fact is, you might be surprising a mortal man, which you will not be, but you're not surprising God. He knows if you never confess a thing. He knows your life. He knows your heart. He died for your every sin. He loves you. He wants you to receive the grace of confession and the Eucharist. He wants you to do that. Don't hurt his heart, sweetheart. Go to confession. Forget there's a man there. Talk to Jesus. He loves you. He will forgive you. We'll speak with you all tomorrow, dear ones.